the optimal life. Michael, who was Adolf Hitler? Adolf Hitler was a man that came to power um, in the late 20s. There was a lot going on back then. World War I was already lost, and a lot of the locals uh, were blaming the Jews for the loss of the war for, for reasons that were totally not accurate. Um, and he was a great orator, and uh, he fought in World War I, and he believed uh, based on the economy and various social situations going on at that time, he had a pretty big audience, and uh, he, he spouted a lot of anti-Semitism, uh, a lot of um, anti-communism, and he just wanted to give the people hope that through his leadership, he would take Germany into a new prosperity. So his beef was, we lost World War I because of the Jews. That was his main message? That was one of the major reasons. He believed that the Jews were behind the loss of World War I. Uh, he believed that the um, the Russians and the Jews were collaborating with each other. They believed that the Jews were their direct competitor, that they were the ones who wanted to rule the world. They wanted to have some kind of a scapegoat to give to the German people, and the Jews were the perfect ones for them. Mm. So what happens then from World War I to World War II? What, 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 how does he start to gain more and more influence and power? Well, during after World War One, there were there were uh, sanctions uh, that were placed upon the German people, and that put a lot of economic stress on the country. And um, as the Germans were suffering from uh, the economy, um, Hitler, in the meantime, came to power through. Uh, political manipulation, uh, taking over the chancellery. Uh, there was a lot of underhanded events that were going on and somehow he got elected uh, with about 35 to 40% of the population. A lot of this uh, was a lot of um, political exchanges between one government and another and somehow he came to power that way. Was he competing against a communist regime? No, he was competing against a, a, a chancellor who was there for or the president who was there for a really long time, who spouted a lot of de democratic values. Um, and communism was one of the factions that were involved in competing for the political influence over the country. But it was uh, a combination of communism which uh, influenced a lot of people. and But the, the bottom line is it was a democratically run country until uh, Hitler took it over. So he takes it over with only, we'll say at the high end, 40%, meaning that 60% of the people were not convinced. That's all. Majority of the people were not convinced with his stance at that time. That is correct. And so what happened was he, the, 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 the band of uh, mobs that were following him uh, were very threatening to a lot of people. And there was a lot going on behind the scenes uh, with what they call false flags. They were blowing up buildings and blowing up the chancellery and they were blaming it on the Jews and the communists. And that was one of the ways they influenced the major part of the population to follow Hitler. So they were they were causing damage to their own people and to their own country? 
in order for them to make the Jews the scapegoat, essentially. Well, essentially, but they were they were tar- targeting the influence, the government that was influencing the country at that time, and they believed to point the finger at that government that they were the ones to be creating all this chaos, that they would have a following. And of course, one of the one of the attractions for the people was there was a lot of anti-Semitism going on at that time anyway. And what better group to blame than the than the Jewish population? And that also gave them a lot of power. How many Jews were living in Germany at that time? I would say it was. Um, I would have to say it's close to six, seven million. I'm not. I don't really have a definite number on that. Okay, because I know when you look at the numbers, six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. At least that's the numbers that have typically been reported. That is, that is correct. Um, the numbers could be higher. I'm not really sure, Nate, about the total number of Germans that were living there at the time. Total number of Jews that were living in Germany, right. Right. Um, okay. So, and, and we'll get more to the Holocaust stuff. But I, So, Hitler comes into power what year? Uh, 1933. 33. And then World War II begins when? 1939. The, the invasion okay. of Poland. It was in 39. And through those six years, there was a lot of buildup of the military. There was a lot of buildup of anti-Semitism. Uh, and they they were they were rising to power through Hitler's uh nationalism. So through that nationalism in those period of six years, when does it start getting very intense? When when did when do they start? you know, put putting the Jews on the bus, essentially. Is it in that time frame or is it after 39? No, no, it was definitely before the war. It was like 1935, 36. They started blaming Jews. In fact, I think they opened up the first concentration camp in Dachau in 1934, 35, somewhere in that time frame. So when they open up a concentration camp, Michael, do they then publicize how do they, how do they sell the concentration camp to their people? What are they saying? They were they weren't going they weren't publicizing. They were just taking the Jews and putting them into internment camps. I'm using the word I guess I'm using concentration camp kind of a loose term, but they were uh, put in there as being considered the enemy of the state. And a lot of the uh, what they call the brown shirts, these were the, the Nazi uh, followers. They blamed the Jews for the economy at that point, and they blamed the Jews for a lot of the political unrest. And so the Germans would uh, arrest these the, the Jewish people they were targeting. A lot of them were influential people. They were doctors, attorneys, scientists, uh, heads of uh, companies, and they were putting them into internment camps, which eventually became a full-fledged concentration camp. What are you? What's the difference between internment versus concentration? In my eyes, a concentration camp was a place where people were actually being worked to death. They had no. They had no. Uh, they had no allegiance to anyone who didn't follow their rules, and the, to them, it was being uh, incarcerated with no coming out. So they would literally go and pull these people from their homes Absolutely. and take them away. They would right. go door to door. 
Some of them, yes. They also had what they called the uh, the uh, crystal knot, the night of the broken glass, where they actually um, put fire to various synagogues and homes. And they were um, there were many Germans that pointed out where the Jewish homes were. In fact, my 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 parents, my grandparents, for the most part, Nate, were taken by the locals that were pointed out. Um, when the Nazis arrived in Lithuania, they were pointed, the Germans asked them where the Jewish homes were. And then the Germans told the locals to just get their guns and their knives, et cetera, and to go into the homes and exterminate the Jewish people in those homes. Oh, jeez. That's and, you know, this wasn't just Jewish people, Michael. This, no, they no, were going absolutely. after other people. They were going after gays and people with disabilities and a plethora of other minorities. They were just going after anybody that didn't fit the bill that they were trying to achieve. Is that, that, is is that fair to say? Yeah. There were Catholics, uh, 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 gypsies, bisexuals, um, anyone that they considered to be inferior. Uh, and that's what they blamed the Jews too. They blamed them to be an inferior race. So there was, anti, there was a racial component to all this too, Nate. That they believed the Jews were below everybody else. And because of that, they wanted to purify the Aryan nation. And they were going to get rid of the people that they considered to be what they called to be lowlifes or not really um, not really valued enough to be considered part of the population. So I'm just trying to understand how they know who all these people are. Because this is back, there's no internet, there's no social media. How does the government and these higher up people know, hey, this person's Jewish, this person's disabled, this person's bisexual, this per how, how do they know where to go and, and, and who to target? A lot, of, a lot of the locals betrayed a lot of the other locals, and also the Gestapo became very big back then too. And they had ways of infiltrating into these organizations, not organizations, but into the population to, to point out who were the what they considered the bad guys, and that had to be eliminated. A lot of there was a lot of undercurrent then, and there was a lot of secrecy and and people snitching on other people, and it was that way that they would find who was to be eliminated. That's where I th that's where I thought you would go. Yeah, because that reminds me a lot of North Korea. Anyone that knows North Korea today, you snitch on your neighbor so that you don't get in trouble. Exactly. So the whole nation is full of trying to appease these higher ups. And what they do is they tattletale on each other in order right. to look good in the eyes of, of the kings. And what, what's what's even more disturbing, Nate, is that there are actually Jewish people back then that snitched on their Jewish neighbors as well. Mm. All because they would get the freedom they thought that they were going to get because they were they considered themselves valuable to the Nazis. Now, did they get that freedom or were they ultimately exterminated as well? A lot of them were exterminated, yes. But right. uh, So you show your allegiance for a period of time, and then once they're done exterminating all your friends and all your former neighbors, now it's your turn. That's exactly right, Nate. Not only that, but also the fact that during World War I, there were a lot of Jewish Germans that were on the side of Germany fighting Russia and the other countries, and they believed when Hitler came to power, they would not. They were not going to be touched. Walk, the, these, uh, these Jewish veterans were walking around with their medals, and they're walking around town thinking, no German's going to take me. I fought in World War I. I, you know, I had friends who died. And in the end, even the, the, the Jewish uh, um, 
soldiers, the, the veterans were actually taken away and exterminated as well. Talk to us a little bit. Give us give us some of the real darkness of these uh, uh, concentration camps. You talk about hard labor and you're basically left, you're imprisoned. But when it comes to killing, they, they work these people, they work them, they work them. And then ultimately, what do they do? When, when do they decide, hey, you're no longer valuable. It's time to now send you off to the showers. Take us through that. Okay, so what would they would end up uh, arriving, most of them arriving by train, um, and then they would be put into uh, work details. And if you were too sick or too old, uh, you were exterminated. Um, and so these work de- details was no picnic either, Nate. I mean, they, they had their, their work hours were fucking four in the morning. They had to march onto these details to work on quarries and roads and bridges. They would get back to their barracks, which was just horrendous. They would actually sleep on the floor. They would have nothing to really, there was the mattresses, if they had mattresses, were made out of um, shredded paper. Uh, the, the, the facilities in the barracks were supposed to hold like maybe 100 to 150. There was like three to 400 in there. The facilities weren't working. There was no running water. There were rats running around all over the place. Um, and their their bottom line was to work these, uh, these uh, prisoners to death. And they would do that by starvation. Uh, they would do that by uh, uh, not getting that, not getting enough sleep. There were uh, what they called details, or what they say they call lineups, where they would line people up, and they were examining the individuals for their physical uh, abilities to work. And if they weren't up for the task, they were then exterminated, either uh, by shooting or going to uh, the gas chambers for showers, which is the, the initial way that what they did. Now, my father's case, Nate, based on the um, documents I found after my father's death, my father was an electrician, and they kept him alive in Dachau because of his electrical background. And one of his responsibilities that I found in the documents was that he was responsible for taking the dead bodies off the electrical fences in 1945, the ones who either tried to commit suicide or who tried to get away. He then would have to put them on a wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow, and then wheel them into the crematorium where they were being burned. Oh my! And that was goodness. one of his major jobs, being inside a dachau. So these folks, would they understand what they were walking into when they said it's your time to go to the gas chamber? Did they know that this was it? No, I think based on what I read, most of them did not. They were, although the word get, did get around eventually that. Um, at later on in the uh, in their captivity, that uh, going into the gas chambers was not what you wanted to do, and they, they would try. Some of them tried to get away, and in most cases, they were still put into the into the showers, and then by gas, they were gassed. So, so they put into these showers, and they they turn the gas on, they lock the door, and these people just suffer for a period of time, and and then that's it. Their body shuts yeah, down; right. they, they can't breathe anymore. Right. They had some kind of poison um, gas tablets that they were actually put in the ventilators. And once the showers came on, they would um, or didn't come on, but they end up uh, dropping these tablets or these pellets onto the floor and it would gas 
there, there was like maybe a hundred to 150 in one, one big shower stall. Mm. And then they would, they would uh, just suffocate. Wow. And you got to remember too, a lot of the, a lot of the trains that were coming in from other parts of the country, a lot of them didn't even make it into the camps. They, they actually died inside the box cars out of suffocation or of other elements. So many of them, once they opened the cars, a lot of them were already dead. Intentionally, they, they, they put them into these, they right. stuffed them into these trains uh, full of other kind of chemicals and gases. No, not, well, they didn't have chemical gases, but they didn't have any ventilation. Oh, okay. They didn't have any facilities and people were actually crammed in side by side where some of them had to actually lift their arms in the air just to get them to just fit in there because you couldn't even sit. Women and children included. That is absolutely correct. And so, and, and in my, in, in the book, I talk about how the GIs found these boxcars that were lined up on the train tracks and they couldn't even open the doors because Dachau was so overcrowded that the, um, commanders in the Dachau camp decided not even to open the doors because there was no place to put them. So they just left them in the cars to die. We're talking about 30 boxcars. So when, when the Americans arrived there and they found the camp, they went out into the, into the areas outside the camp and they found these boxcars. And when they opened up, the GI saw all these dead bodies inside. What about the children? The children would also be privy to the exact same kind of treatment in these camps. And then when it was, they had no use for them, they treated them just like a, a grown adult. Correct. They threw them into the chamber. They shot right. them. They electrocuted them. Right. To them, it was like they didn't want a next generation of uh, Jews to be around. And they just wanted to get rid of as many Jews as it was amazing. Towards the end of the world, their objective never changed, Nate. Their objective always was to get rid of as many Jews as possible. Uh, was, which leads me to my story when my, my mother and father was in the Kovna ghetto in 1941 to 45. I, my sister was born in 1940. And in the Kovna ghetto, which is Countess, it was the capital city back then, they would have these raids on these apartment buildings inside the ghetto. And when they went into the, into the, into the apartments, they would take clothes and jewelry and money. The last raid they had was called the Night of the Children. It was the night that they went in and took children under the age of 12. And they put them on two trucks to wheel them into the extermination chamber right outside of the Kovna ghetto. And one of those children was my sister Rose, who died at age three and a half, along with 1,600 other kids. That was the hardest chapter for me to write in the book. Uh, when were, I got, you born, were you born yet, Michael, or no? No, this was in 1940. This happened in 1944. I was born in 49. Your parents, your parent, they took your, your sister away. Your parents were still living. Right. My mother and father were still there. Uh, my mother was actually, and this goes into the book, my father dug what they call a spider hole underneath the floor of their apartment. And underneath that floor, there were, uh, there were rations and various types of of, of uh, food and water that they were going to be able to stay underneath that floor for a couple of days. Well, what happened was, now we're talking about the ghetto now, Nate. We're not talking about the camps. Um, my father went on a work detail and my mother was underneath the floor with my sister. 
and the Germans came in and they were ready to walk out and they found uh, uh, they found them underneath the floor. And this goes into the documents that I found and I didn't even know this. But anyway, so the Germans ended up uh, taking my mom and my sister up from the floor, grabbed my, my sister Rose and my mother went running after her and she was hit in the head by one of the SS officers with the back of his rifle and Rose was never seen again. So, and, and this was very, very little information was ever spoken about in books about what happened in the Kovna ghetto in March of March 27th and 28th of 1944, the night of the children's raid. And, and as I said, in my book, I, I dedicate my book to Rose and one of those children, picture of, not Rose, we never had a picture of Rose, but there was a child in there I got from the Yad Vashem website in Jerusalem. And that child was actually born and died almost the same time as my sister, and she was almost the same age. And she represents the 1,600 kids who got killed in the, in the next two days, the last two days. That's so heavy. Uh, I'm a father of three young girls. And, uh, man, I, I cannot believe that these, these people were that evil. To oh, take okay. a three-year-old child away right. from their parents to never be seen from or heard from again. No. And they did this because they, they they felt the children were going to encumber the women from working. That was the major reason they didn't want the women to be, in, they wanted women to work and they felt, felt the children were going to be a distraction. So the way they, they decided to do it, it was just to get rid of the children. And that's, and, and what makes it even harder, Nate, and this is what I'm saying, my parents were mir a miracle couple because of what they had gone through, the strength of their human spirit. It was their love and their faith and their courage that got them through. Within three months after that raid, Nate, my mom and my dad were on the um, platform, where the train platform where they were being taken to the either the Dachau camp or my mother. She went up to Stutthof, which is a camp in northern Poland. And that's where the vow comes from. The vow comes from the fact that they made a vow before they were shipped onto the boxcars that if either one were to live there, were to go back to their hometown to see if the other one was still alive. And this was only three months after Rose was taken out of my mother's arms. And you can imagine most, most of these people probably would have committed suicide or they would have had a nervous breakdown. Or it, it was incredible how they survived. So three months after the government... This comes in the nazis take away your sister yeah it was it was in it was uh march and the the uh the the evacuation of the ghetto was in july so, so it was about three, three months three months after my sister died they take them to and uh, what year was this this was well this was in 1944 so this was oh. march of 44 they were taken in around july of 40 44 and they didn't they didn't get out until um april of 1945 so there's about eight nine months so eight nine months they're 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 taken away they don't have any other children at this point no they've just lost their precious three-year-old daughter to the evil that it was and now they're shipped away separately to various places they don't they probably both assume there's no way either of us are coming back alive no, they the the the, local, the people who were put on those trains, Nate, were were told they were going to be resettled for their own safety. They were not told where they were going. They did they did separate the men 
and the boys from the women and the girls. So one boxcar was heading north towards the Stutthof concentration camp, and these were the girls and the women. And the other boxcars were heading in the other direction, south, going towards Dachau. That were the men and boys around 16 or over. So they didn't know. So in other words, all that time they were apart, Nate, they didn't even know if the other one was still alive. So they just, you know, they just, well, that's where the whole thing about the mission comes in. My father actually found my mother after the war was over. And that's a whole story in itself. So that's in 44. What, what, one thing that I can't help, I want to hear more of your story, more of your parents' story. But the thing that I can't help but think about as you're telling this story and rehashing all the despicable, evil, nasty acts that were happening to humanity back then in this part of the world. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, we always hear the Jews and these people say, never again, never again. And yet, hey, I sure saw a lot of people doing what they were told to do by the government during COVID, whether you agreed with it or not. The government was telling people what to do, and they were doing it. All these people that are saying, never again, never again, never again. I see them posting never again on Facebook, never again. Meanwhile, they're being told to do this, 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 and this, and they're doing every single thing. What what can we do to ensure, Michael, that this atrocious nature, this despicable, atrocious type of regime never comes into power again? Is Is it possible to prevent this, or is it possible that there may be an again at some point? No, it could because a lot of these people are sheeple. They just follow the they follow the crowd, and if if they if the government tells them to do something, they do it. They don't have any independent thinking. They go along with the group, and that's how and that's how people get that's how people get killed in their control. So you, yeah, you're right. You wish you know, and then you don't even talk about the the Holocaust deniers, the ones who believe that's never happened. Even now, that anti-Semitism, that sentiment is becoming almost up. It's almost at a level it's never seen before. And I was going to ask you about that, too, Michael. Yeah. When you hear somebody deny the Holocaust, what does that do to your insides? How, how do you manage that? It's, it's very, very difficult. The only thing I can do is just speak up and, and do what I'm doing now and make sure my book gets into the hands of as many people as I can. And when they pull that kind of stunt on me and I got documents that were uh, submitted to the German courts in 1964 for reparations. And these lawyers and these doctors had to to submit these petitions, which goes into detail about what my parents went through. It's hard to deny that never happened. And it's almost insulting that they even bring it up. But you're always gonna get these mobs, these these crazy lowlifes that come up with these cockamamie ideas that the, the the war never happened or the Holocaust never happened is total insanity. You got to stand up to them. And that's I, the I, 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 after seeing what happened from 2020 through 2022 with the whole, especially in 2020 and 21 with the, with the COVID and, and people being told what to do and literally doing it almost, they almost got to the point where it, they would, you became tattletailed on by your neighbor. If you weren't following everything the government said to do, it, it's the exact same thing. Exactly. It's not to the level of atrociousness that we saw clearly with Nazi Germany, but it starts somewhere. Right. And, and all these one, Jewish people saying never again, you're full of shit. I've seen you guys say never again. And then you did it. You did what you were told. And I'm telling you not to say that couldn't happen again, because I, I know I, I 
listen, you can't separate it by religion, Nate. People just, their natural instinct is to follow the, the lead, follow the crowd. And if you have an independent way of thinking, which I do, because I also, even now we're, we're being uh, uh, vindicated by the fact that those, those, those vaccines were really all bunch of masks, the vaccines that are coming out now knowing. And I knew even back then that, and I don't want to go into the whole thing about the vaccines, but I mean, I knew then there was a lot going on. They wouldn't allow doctors to come on and explain to them what was going on. The, the, the uh, information that they had and the government would not let them release that information. This is identical to what happened to, not only what happened to the Holocaust in Germany, it's happening in other countries as well to this day. Mm. It, it comes down to human nature. People are afraid to stand up and speak for themselves. It's, it's so true and so disturbing. So your parents are, are separated for nine months from 44 till April, July of 44 till about April of 45. Tell us a little, take us through a little bit of the story. What ends up happening? How do they reunite? Okay, so let me back up and first of all say what towards the end, as the Allies were closing in on the on the camps, they were moving a lot of Jews out of one camp into another to keep them out of the arms way of the uh, of the Allies. And for one big reason, they wanted the Jews to continue to work, to make the armaments, to make whatever they had to make for the military war machine. So in my mother's case, they had what they call a death march where they would take the Jews out of the camp and they would be moving them to another camp. In my mother's case, it was it was Stutthof, which is about 20 miles south of the Baltic Sea. My mother and my aunt marched in the freezing cold for, I think, six or seven days to get to the beach, which they never got to, thank God, because what was happening is they were having these uh, marches in... Um, they were stag they were stagnating the marches into different groups they were being shot into in the baltic sea before they got to the barges that were uh stationed off the beach so these people old some of them died on the way from the march just died in the snow from the march and my mother and my and my aunt were actually 2 miles away from the beach when the russians came out from the um from the, the the trees, the tree line, and they started having a skirmish with the German guards. And my mother and my aunt were part of that group that got liberated by the Russians. So I have oh. to say that the Russians were the ones that liberated my mom. Um, so so these death marches were going on all over Europe. And in my father's case, it was a similar death march out of Dachau to go to southern Germany to work in another camp. The Allies were already in the area, and they just the, uh, the the German guards that were guarding my father and the group that was with them put down put down their arms and were liberated that way. So after liberation, both were liberated through the death marches. Um, when my father got out of the infirmary, about six weeks later. In my chapter, I call it the mission, where he, he actually traveled through three different countries looking for my mother at the displacement camps along the route that he was taking. Now, the displacement camps were the places where uh, the Jews and, and others didn't have a place to go home to. And so they, they, they housed them in displacement camps all through Europe. A lot of them immigrated to Israel. 
a lot of them immigrated to England, South America, and United States, South Africa. How was he traveling? He was by traveling. Train? He was traveling by train, by car. He walked. GIs were picking him up along the roadway and took him to the next next displacement camp. He and how long to, is this occurring for? Uh, close to two and a half months. Two and a half months, so ten weeks, give or take. Right. This and man I'm, is traveling by foot, by train, by car, however he could move. Right, and that was the vow that they made, Nate. And the, his his main thing was to get out of that infirmary and get on the road. And he mapped out a whole way of getting there through the, through the by going the route of where the displacement camps were. So he would go to these displacement camps and ask them, "The where are the women of the of the Kovna ghetto?" And, and that my mother was not there. And he would just go from one camp hoping the next displacement camp would be where my mother was on his way back to Lithuania, because that's where they were supposed to meet. So he's traveling through all these cities, going through these countries, looking for my mom. He ends up in Bolystok, Poland, and he meets a man. On, and I'm going into the book. I'm giving away too much. He meets a man in the street who actually knew my father. He was in the apartment building where they lived, where my sister Rose was taken, and he met him on the street. And there, this gentleman, his name is Sam, and I know Sam, he was alive when I was still, when I was around. Um, he, he saw my mother only a day before, and she had typhus fever, and she was going to the infirmary in Bollystock, Poland for treatment. And when he met the man in the street, he said, your wife is still alive, and my father actually went, you know, he went, he was just going, obviously, he was just broke down and started crying. And the rest, I'm not going to go into the way they reunited in that infirmary goes into the chapter. It's really very moving. Well, now, I'll tell you one thing, the... though. My mother said to me when they finally met, and she was only hours away from death, Nate. She had typhus fever, she had a burning fever. She told me that when she looked up at my father after not seeing him for almost a year, that he said, she said, my mother's name is Dora. My father's name is David. So she said, she, she said to my father, she said, David, are we in heaven? She looked at my father like an angel as who was going to be taking her because she thought she was already dead and she saw my father in the afterlife. Oh, my gosh. You gave me the chills when you said that he, the, the guy told him that your, your wife is in the hospital or whatever, wherever she was. Right. Uh, it, it, was, it was miraculous. I mean, they were walking down the street. They were going in opposite directions. They both spoke Yiddish, and my father was walking by me, didn't recognize him, and but the but Sam heard my father's voice, and somehow he knew that mm. uh, that was David. And of course, they thought that each was dead. They thought Sam died in the in the ghetto, and and Sam thought my father and mother died. And then, how much longer? Then they finally they reunite a year later. It's 1945, and then when are you born? I was born in 49, but there was, when they, when they reunited in 45, they ended up going to what a displacement camp outside of Munich, Germany called Fahrenwald. And that's in a chapter by itself. My mother opened up the, f the first school inside that displacement camp for the children whose parents died during the war. My mother spoke six languages. She opened up the school with a number of other teachers. I found the photograph of my mother, the teachers, and her children in the Yad Vashem website. There was a picture of my mother, and it's in the book. And what's the most astonishing, Nate, 
is in July of 1946, General Eisenhower visited the displacement camp along with a number of dignitaries and military. And I found the picture of my father's and my parents' family album of General Eisenhower standing there with my brother in his baby carriage standing in front of him. Apparently some GI took the photograph of General Eisenhower in 46. And there my brother was in his baby carriage with a number of dignitaries. He probably gave it to my dad. So I found this in, the, in my family album. The picture was maybe one by two inches. I couldn't make it out until it took a, mic, a, a, a um, magnifying glass and I put it on the photo and I realized I was General Eisenhower. It's in the book. Wow. That picture is in the book. So you have a you have they ended up having a baby boy and then they had you as well. Right. My brother, my brother, Alan, was born in Munich, Germany. I'm the only uh, surviving member outside of my niece. I was I'm the only native born in my family. So, um, right. My brother's born in Munich, Germany in ninth in July of 46. And uh, he he died in 2008 from hepatitis C which can be trailed back to what happened to him. He had an operation in, in the displacement camp and they used unsterilized um, medical equipment and he had tainted blood in the system. And years later, uh, he developed hepatitis C and he died at the age of 58. And what year did your parents finally get over to the United States? In uh, late 1948, early 49, I was born in December of 49. Mm. Wow. It's an incredible story, Nate. I'm telling you, the whole book. I mean, I've been told time and time again, this is this is something a Spielberg movie would be made from. Um, Talk to us. You're, you're talking about the book, guys. We've linked to this book in the show notes. Michael's relatively new book, The Vow, A Love Story and the Holocaust. We've linked it here. You could you can check it out um, if you want to learn more. But you've talked to us about some of the details. Give us a high level of exactly what the book talks about and, and who's the type of audience that should consume this. Okay, so when I wrote the book, I knew all along this, you know, as you said, never again, never again. My 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 quote is the strength of the human spirit, and that if it wasn't for my parents' love and their faith and their courage, they would never have survived the war. Now get this, in the country of Lithuania, 96 0.7% of the Jews were exterminated. So we're talking about a hundred and there's like 150,000. Uh, there was less than 3,000. I think there was less than 3,000 that lived. And two of those were my parents. And, and that had the highest number of Jewish deaths by country in the entire continent of Europe. And when I looked at that number for the first time, I realized right then that these that my parents were a miracle couple, considering that we're talking almost 97% of the Jews of that country were killed, that my mother and my father survived. So, so my, my whole premise was, when I walk away from making a presentation, I want people to know that it's the strength of your human spirit that can get you through anything, considering my parents had gone through so much and they still survived, any any challenge or or any problem that comes up, you can come you can overcome by just going within and tapping into that in, internal human spirit we all have. Well, what year? When did your mother and father pass, respectively? My father passed away in 1993 from uh, heart disease, and my mother ended up passing away in 2002. 
She had Alzheimer's for 13 years, Nate. Both my aunts had the same disease. And my mother was reliving those experiences even when she was sick. She was thinking that it was still 1940 Germany. I mean, went to visit them in Florida. They had a condo in Miami Beach. And I remember my mother getting up in the middle of the night, going to the door, making sure the door was locked four or five times a night, making sure they weren't coming in. There were other instances where I came into their condo and my mother was in the kitchens cooking meals for 10 people. She actually set set plates um, uh, on the dining room table and she was expecting, my mother was one of nine children, and she was expecting her all her siblings were coming to dinner. And she was in the kitchen cooking. And I said, Mom, what are you doing? She goes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm making dinner for Sarah and for Rivka and for and all the all her siblings. And she didn't realize that they had been dead, dead for nearly 40 years. It was really sad. She must have talked about your sister quite a bit during that time. No, too. no. The only, she only brought her up one time to me and I didn't really press it. It was when we were sitting watching uh, what they call um, documentaries, the world at war back in the 60s. They would show the Germans taking the Jews away into, into the concentration camps. Little did I know, I couldn't even make the connection that my mom and dad sitting alongside of me were actually part of that. what I was watching on TV. They really didn't speak about it that much. My mother brought it up only one time. She said, you know, you had a sister. And I just didn't press it. Mm. I, I met a, I met a cousin uh, recently, uh, and she told me that they went to visit them, and she did go into more detail about my sister Rose uh, being alive and taken. The vowalovestory.com, we've linked it in the show notes. This is a fascinating story. You, you've moved me to uh, tears and, and, and teary-eyed and goosebumps in this 40-minute conversation that we've had multiple times. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing this story and keeping your parents' legacy alive and reminding people the strength of the human spirit. I want to finish it with one final question. We kind of have talked about this several times, but I just want to make, really drive the message home. People are listening and they say, and they, you know, Nazi Germany, it sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds fake. It sounds like there's no way that could ever happen again. We're in the 21st century, blah, blah, blah. There's, that's That's old stuff. What do you say to people to make sure that we remain vigilant to ensure that it truly is never again. We got it. We got to stand up to these people to make sure that they are properly. We properly address them in the correct way that we have to, we have to push back, as I said before, and make sure these people don't have a foothold uh, by spreading their message, which, which was, which was a fantasy. Uh, to create all this animosity and this prejudice. And we got to keep reminding the people that what they're doing was similar to what happened during the war. And it doesn't necessarily have to be only the Jews and these the other the other groups that were killed, that they were trying to prove to uh, to people who were not part of what their way of thinking, to go with them when in reality, what they're doing is separating people from each other. And that's the one thing we got to stop from happening. Beautifully stated. Michael, thank you so much. Really appreciate connecting with you. Thank you, Ned. I appreciate the time.